Hey all, before we get started with today's episode with Terry Haynes, I wanted to sincerely thank you for listening to the Player Engage podcast. Your time and input are incredibly valuable to us and we're grateful for your engagement with us. Please feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn or search for Player Engage directly or you can look for myself, Greg Posner. For more insight and updates, please visit us at playerengage.com. And if you found our content enriching or enlightening or, or just eh, fun to listen to, consider subscribing to us and ensure that you never miss an episode. Your support really helps us bring the latest and greatest to the gaming world and to your ears. So thank you so much. And let's continue this conversation together. And please never hesitate to reach out. I love being able to connect with everyone. So thank you again. And please enjoy our latest episode. Welcome to the Player Engage podcast, where we dive into the biggest challenges, technologies, trends, and best practices for creating unforgettable player experiences. Player Engage is brought to you as a collaboration between Keyword Studios and HelpShift. Here is your host, Greg Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Player Engage podcast. Greg here. Today, we are joined by Terry Haynes from Tanglewood Games. And I'm excited to be able to talk to, to Terry. He's been uh, in the industry for quite some time. He was the first person I actually connected with when we came to Keywords. And just a little bit about Terry. Uh, he was a business development manager for multiple studios like Electric Square, Studio Gobo, D3T, and now Tanglewood Games. He's been in QA and he's done a lot in the gaming industry. So Terry, thank you so much for coming here today. Is there anything you want to say about yourself? Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me along, Greg. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, I, I remember meeting you for the first time I think it was GDC last year. I think it was in San Francisco. I kind of lose, I lose my years after um, COVID. Kind of played a kind of was it pre-COVID, after COVID, and all that sort of malarkey right. um, and stuff. But yeah, as you say, I've, I've been involved in the games industry since 1989. First starting off in QA at a company called Virgin Mastertronic, uh, which some people may not even heard of, um, and then moving on to Sega, and then moving on to Probe Entertainment. Um, <clears throat> and Probe was kind of like, I guess, the first kind of, not necessarily co-dev, but it will work for higher studios. So we did things for publishers such as Mortal Kombat. We did a load of uh, Disney titles. We worked on the first FIFA back in 96 for EA and, and so forth. So, yeah, there was a lot of, um, that was kind of my thing. And I was in production those days. And then slowly but surely kind of moved along into uh, away from production and into more business development, as I see today. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about the business development costs. It may not make always the idea for the sexiest podcast out there, but you know, it's one of these things that we talk about networking a lot on the podcast because networking is an important skill set that you kind of got to hone and get perfect. And I remember when I first come to keywords, I'm like, oh shit, who am I going to reach out to? And I came up with a list of names and you were at the top and I reached out to you and you got right back to me. I'm just like, okay, it's kind of like breaking the ice for the first time. So, so I want to make sure we talk about kind of the networking effect, what makes yep. it so strong. But but looking at the, the, I was looking at your LinkedIn and the first thing that popped up and probably not the most exciting one was like you mentioned QA testing, right? You were a QA tester back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And I'm just curious, what was that like? What Do you have any memories from that? Or is it just so nightmarish you blacked it all out? Yeah, no, I, I have memories of it being, um, I started when I was 17 um, and after the first week of being there, I turned around to someone on Friday and said, are we coming back on Monday? They went, yeah, this is a job. And I went, oh, this is mental. Because um, I was a keen gamer, but like to think that you were getting paid to play games in QA back all those many years ago was was extraordinary. But it's, I mean, the, the, the days of those are things that really stick in my head compared to today is that the industry was just so much smaller. Uh, so it was, it was, not tiny, but it was a lot smaller than it is today. Way, way smaller. And the teams on the games are smaller. Like I remember working on games with people where you had one programmer, one artist, uh, one designer who sometimes did the audio as well. And you might have a producer person. You may not have a producer person on it. Uh, and then you had the QA department, and that was it. It's kind of – I remember working with Dave Perry and Nick Brutey, uh back in the day and, and – like Dave Perry's been around the industry for a long time. He's, he's he's a bit of a legend in the industry. But yeah, it was like Dave and Nick Bruti, and we had some audio done by Jerome Tell, and and that was it. It was like three, four people. That that was the size of the games back in those days. It's kind of these are the days of like ST and, and Amiga before uh, Sega Mega Drive or Master System come along, and then the Mega Drive, and then you had the Nintendo systems and stuff. But yeah, they were they were very. There were small companies. I mean, small companies, small small teams, not 
nothing compared to what it is. I, I worked when I worked at Virgin Mastertronic, we were 32 people in the whole company, and that covered everything from a few people in the dev team, marketing, sales, accounts, HR, QA, everything. You get 32 artists plus now on a game. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it, it, the whole. It's it's a different aspect, but no, it was it was great to be a part of, and it was great to kind of be able to talk about those days and where it's come from and and how we went about making video games uh compared to the days now and and the mistakes that were made and the learning curve by that generation really has allowed the industry today it's not i mean not i'm not kind of waving my flag and oh, it was all down to me and all down to people of my generation and my age but i mean we didn't have like production tools we didn't have things like i mean waterfall and 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 software to do stuff it was kind of an excel document and how long do you think this is going to take you and you put in eight hours 16 hours or two whatever and then it kind of like it come out and go right that means it's going to finish then it's like oh yeah we need to make those things happen quicker because there was it wasn't like you're going oh let's let's put more resources on it It wasn't an awful lot of people making video games those days most of if not all of the engineers were self-taught in their bedroom so there was i can't remember exactly the year that i met someone who joined the industry that went to university to come into the industry everybody was self-taught do you know what i mean so it was a, a, a completely different um environment back in those days but extremely fun extremely exciting lots of young people living by the seat of their pants trying to get stuff done and um yeah it, it was it was a pleasure to be a part of it did you know this is something you want I, i'm just trying to imagine kind of what the gaming scene was like back then which i mean calling it scene might be might be doing it a lot of justice but like how, how do you get involved with something at that time or, or how do you even know that it's going to be something or you just take a chance yeah no i i kind of fell into it you know i mean i i left i left school at 16 um didn't go to college didn't go to university it was very different in those days um and I kind of got a job. I saw something advertised saying they're looking for QA, a local company, Virgin Mastertronic, and uh, I applied for it. And there's no way that back then we thought the industry would be as big as it is today. It, I mean, it, it's I mean, impossible to kind of fathom, but I guess the only way you can kind of compare it is it's kind of like the early days, I guess, of TV and film. It's like people got into it. I got into it because I like playing video games. I'm like, wow, I can test games. I'm... I'm a, I'm a keen gamer. I played a lot of games and stuff. And the people, my peers that were doing like the engineering side and the art side, the artists were guys and girls who were good at art at school. And then, because everything was 2D, you know what I mean? And it was like stuff. So they like went, oh, I'm going to bring this and, and I'm going to fall into it. I mean, we had people coming into the industry from um, from like comic books and like 20th century AD, we had some artists who had worked originally on like dread comic books and stuff, and they were using their skills and then finding that they could bring them into computerized and they can go about, I can, I can do some stuff in video games here because you're drawing something in 2d. You can use a computer to draw stuff in 2d animations were very kind of, I don't know, eight frame walk cycles and stuff like that. And yeah. And, and I mean, I think the first game I worked on was on a Spectrum, and we had to get the whole thing done in 48k. Yeah, it's a, it was a different different world, different beast back then, that's for sure. So then time goes on, right? You're you're doing different things for different companies. With uh, you were a producer, you were in recruitment, you were at Hotgen for for a little under or a little over a decade. Yeah. Then you you come to Electric Square where you begin doing business development manager. How did you kind of fall into that type of role? Is that something that drew you, or is that when I worked at Probe Entertainment, I worked alongside people like Tony Beckwith. And for people who are listening to the pod, Tony Beckwith was a guy that formed a studio called Climax Racing that then got acquired by Disney and become BlackRock, and they did certain games such as uh, I mean Tony Beckwith and the team at BlackRock they did. Uh, some incredible stuff for Disney. And I we, we just stayed friends. And while he was doing that, I was working at Hot Gen. I ended up running Hot Gen for a few years when Fergus McGovern, who previously used to run Hot Gen, it's kind of all entwined. Everybody knows everybody in that generation of making games. And uh, he decided to uh, retire and I took over running Hot Gen and therefore I learned to kind of run a business uh, as such to the, the capabilities that we could run it at. We, I then decided to step away from Hot Gen and I wanted to take a bit of a break. Uh, Hot Gen were doing a lot of stuff in interactive toys, uh, plug and play stuff that you might have seen in America. 
there was a huge, uh, massive success in those markets with a company called Jack Pacific. I was taking a break and uh, I caught up with Tony and he asked me how Hot Gem was going. And I said, I don't know, I've left. And he, went, and he was like, no way. And, and then he called me up a couple of days later and said, do you fancy lunch? I might have something I need some help with. I went down to see him in, um, I think it was 2007, if my memory serves me right. And met him for lunch, met um, Tom Williams, met Jim Callan, met Paul Ailiff, who were the other directors and owners of uh, Studio Gobo at that stage. And Studio Gobo owned Electric Square. And Tony wanted someone to come in, do a little bit of biz dev, but also help with some recruitment. Um, and the size of Gobo and Electric Square at that stage, they were about, Cross Studio was about 45, 47, something like that. Um, a lot smaller than it's there. So I joined and I was like, yeah, look, I'll come and do this for a few months. I'm going on holiday in, in August with a family. I'll, I'll do three months and, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see what it takes us. Sort of Got into it, really started enjoying it. Uh, and then Tony asked me if I wanted to extend the contract to the end of the year. And I was like, yeah, why not? I mean, like, I could only play so much golf. And uh, so extended it to the end of the year. And as we went through that year, it was like, yeah, look, do you want this as a full-time job? We're really enjoying having you around. I was really enjoying being part of it all. And um, and it went from there, really. So it wasn't kind of moving into business development um, or running something from um, like Hot Gen into Studio Gobo Electric Square. It wasn't a path that was kind of like defined. And I went, I'm going to go and do this. It was kind of a just a lucky meet up with Tony over a couple of beers one evening. And it was like, I told him I was doing nothing. And he was like, yeah, look, can you come and help? And that's how a lot of people of our generation have kind of done stuff. So even though this is going back, what, seven, eight years ago sort of thing, it's it was kind of still done on that kind of like you you get to work with people that you trust and you want to work with people that you enjoy working with. So it kind of evolved around that really. So it wasn't, uh, as I said, it wasn't, a uh, path seeking kind of like I'm going to go into business development. It kind of evolved around me doing business development and helping them with a little bit of recruitment at that stage within their business. It all, I hate to sound like a broken record, right? But it always comes back down to networking, right? Whether you're just grabbing a beer with an old friend at the bar, whether you're talking to someone on the phone, right? It's about keeping in touch and getting those opportunities that you've built that trust over years and it becomes easy for lack of better words. Yeah, no, net, networking is the is the key. I, I, I highlight it like yourself, Greg, is it's kind of like you have to network, you have to keep in contact with people and you have to you have to talk about your own business because no one else is going to talk about your business if you're not going to talk about it. But you have to network, you have to try and get out there, you have to try and see people at conferences, you have to find the time to do stuff. It could be just a, thing, a simple thing of just replying to an email or replying to a WhatsApp or whatever it may be. It's, it's, it's kind of just keeping that connectivity going. It's difficult. It's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to kind of run your business and stay connected to everybody as well as having your family life and stuff like that. But it, it's trying to find that part and, and trying to find that bit where you can connect with people uh, on as, as a regular basis as you, as you can do. And, and as you say, bumping into some, how many business opportunities and, and, and deals and structure have just been coincidental meeting people in in bars and, and stuff. And and the whole thing of networking, especially it's things like shows, it is kind of like if you've worked with someone and they respect you and you respect them, you, you have a you're always gonna recommend them because you respect what they do. And hopefully that's reciprocated and that they're gonna recommend you. So when you're at conferences, I will say to people like, I mean Try and find the most popular hotel lobby. Try and find the most popular bar area. Catch up with some old friends. If you see your friends or you know someone's talking to somebody you don't know, go over and say hi and, and try and get introduced because the amount of times I've kind of said to people, oh, you should speak to Yuzu because, yeah, you're looking for the same thing. And and that's been pushed my way as well. And, and we all kind of pushed that around. It's mainly in those circumstances due to due to the fact that Someone might be looking for something specifically that your business doesn't um, have and stuff, but you know someone who can help them and stuff. And if you're going to recommend someone to a friend or a business acquaintance, they're going to take your recommendation. It get it, it's kind of it's it's a lot better than cold calling and so forth. And and it just goes a long way because 
I'd like to think that um, if I was introducing you to someone, Greg, or you was introducing me to someone, people are going to respect your introduction and they're going to go, well, if Greg's, if Greg says you're cool, then I should speak to you. And I like to think that if people think that, and if Terry says you're cool, then yeah, we should have a conversation and stuff. So it's the key to everything. Networking is the key to everything, especially for my line of business. I love the way you put that because every enterprise deal or almost every enterprise deal I ever worked on, right? It, it wasn't the Zoom calls. It wasn't the presentation. It wasn't the demo that actually won us the deal, right? It was the social aspect to it, right? Go out, grab a beer, go get dinner, right? Yeah, it's going to cost the company money, but like you build these and form these relationships that are just much more powerful. And, and I think the trust level, like you're mentioning, uh, is great because, you know, when you're at a hotel lobby at a bar at a conference, so is everyone else at a hotel lobby at a bar in a conference. They don't probably know as many people as you do either. So most people won't go bite your head off if you go say hi, especially if you ask them questions about themselves. People love to talk about themselves. So like just ask them what they do for a living, right? And ask them how they do it. And all of a sudden you start building this relationship and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's that is the key. I mean, not necessarily going to have to have, for the people who don't don't drink, you, you don't have to be drinking beer or wine or or, or your vodkas or anything. You can have a, a, a Coke. And I mean, I, I kind of go through stages of like, I'm having a drink and I'm not having a drink and, and stuff and, and, and so forth. And I've, I've still had great nights out and socially having lots of um, diet cokes and so forth and drinking water and so forth. So you haven't got to, uh, you haven't got to hit the alcohol, but what you have to do is you have to hit the social. That that's, that's the key to it. The social is the key to it. It's, it's not um, about, and it's not necessarily about who you're working with. I, I always try to look at um, events that are coming up and, and try to reach out to people that we've done business with or companies we are doing business with. But I also try to scour the, the industry because it's such a, a beast now and there's, there's new companies popping up all the time in different locations around the world. I always try to have a look at companies and kind of go, well, I've never met them before. Like, what are they all about? Let me let me let me see if I can and, and just have you got fifteen minutes? Can we can we meet? Like and, and people are there going, oh, I'm not saying, look, what about the end of the night? Like or the end of the, the meeting. I'm going to be in, I don't know, let's use GDC, for example. I'm going to be in the W or the Intercontinental or the Regis. Are you going to be there? Yeah, great. Well, I'll come and say hi and we'll have a 15-minute chat and, and see where it takes us. And if it's if it's not the right thing for either party, then it's not the right thing for either party. But you've made another contact and stuff. And the other thing I always say to people is that I am who I am and you are who you are. Yeah, and I've worked at Electric Square and Gobo and D3T, and I wore those badges and I wore that with pride. They were great companies, and they still are great companies. I've got lots of friends there, and I still talk to those people on a regular basis. I'm now working at Tanglewood Games. That doesn't change me as an individual, and Tanglewood Games offer a different service than those companies offer. So me keeping my connections and, and companies that I might have spoke to in my Gobo days or Electric Square days or D3T days, that didn't really fit what those companies were offering may change now from a Tanglewood point of view because Tanglewood are a different uh, entity and, and so forth. And I always say to people, don't always kind of connect with people because it's the company who is connect with people because they're people. You know what I mean? Because those people more than likely in their career will move on to a new venture or move on to a new company, may go and start their own business. The days of, our parents and our grandparents working at a company for 25 years and getting a little carriage clock to sit on their mantelpiece. They've gone, they've gone in, in 25, 30 years of business. People are probably working for at least probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, maybe even 10 companies and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it's more about meeting the people than it is um, as well as, as much as it is about meeting the companies. It's about meeting, uh, meeting the people because, if someone moves to another client then uh, or potential client, then that gives you the in into that, that organization. And that's why it's important to build trust as an individual, not necessarily a company that you're representing because then you trust the person, right? Maybe it's not the best fit yeah. for, for the product we're trying to push you, but it's my job to be honest with you and sell you that. But um, let's talk a little bit about games because, you know, yeah. when you're a co-developer, you often don't quite people might not quite understand the types of games that you're building, right? I remember when I started at Keywords, I'm just like, what types of games are they making here? And then you look at the list, you're just like, wow. So I feel like Electric Square, Gobo, D3T, were some of the Keywords larger studios. Are there specific games, and I don't even know if you're allowed to talk about this, but let's let's give it a shot here. Like, 
are there specific games that you remember being a part of or or at least like seeing in the studio that you're like wow that's awesome i can't wait to play this or give it a shot yeah my, i think my days of playing games are, are far probably behind me due to the fact that the younger people are far quicker on the controllers than me and i'm I'm a little bit all fingers and thumbs in those multiplayer games. I prefer playing single player because at least I'm not getting shot by someone. Um, I would say using Gobo as an example, like I joined Gobo and they'd previously worked on Disney Infinity um, and they'd done four packs of Disney Infinity, uh, which were incredibly um, successful, uh, great games, really well reviewed, really well uh, respected from the industry. And they sold really well as well. The Metacritic on those games were 80 highs and into 90s. So sometimes the industry will look at that and go, oh, you've made Disney Infinity. And they just think it's a family-oriented game. You're kind of pigeonholed into like, oh, if we want to make a family-oriented game, we should go and speak to these people because they make family-oriented games. When you take away or scratch away the surface of something like Disney Infinity and really look at like the design of those games and, and the content that's in those games and the creativity that's in their games. It's kind of, you realize how good some a team like Studio Gobo is. I would say one of the pillows uh, in taking Gobo from a Disney Infinity into where they are today is uh, when they worked with Ubisoft on For Honor. So you've gone from Disney Infinity, uh, Mickey Mouse, uh, all Pirates of the Caribbean, all of the licenses that are within the Disney world to For Honor, Hack and Slash, Melee, very hardcore fighting games. So you've got kid-friendly Mickey Mouse to now I'm going to chop off your head playing a, a multi-set thing. Those are, the, those are the genres of the games, but the quality and content within people making those games is, is still uh, the underneath and under the belly of it. So I would say For Honor was a big turning point in, in Studio Gobo's um, career. Uh, and I think lots of companies need those pillows and defining pillars that allow you to kind of step onto another game. I think every studio would have that. I mean, Electric Square, when I was there, I can talk about these games because they're in the public domain. And this is my opinion. It's, it's uh, people at Electric Square, Gobo and D3T may uh, disagree, but... I would say uh, Electric Square, when they were working on uh, Forza Street, it was kind of like it was set up as a racing studio, it was set up as a mobile studio. So Forza Street was a big racing game on there. Um, a lot of people come who were part of Electric Square were ex-Boss Aliens, so they had done CSR racing and so forth. And they brought that to the thing. And then over time, Electric Square then went and done the Grand Tour uh, for Amazon and stuff, which was an incredible feat of engineering and get that game out on a weekly basis to coincide with a show. If anyone ever does a talk on that, I think people will really appreciate like what went on behind the scenes to get that game out. It was when I was part of Electric Square, I always put it in a presentation. It wasn't the most successful game uh, that was out there compared to other games. To get a game and develop that in 14 months from start to finish. And for 13 Fridays, get a game out every Friday that coincided like you've just watched the show, now you can go and play the show. I think it's, a, it's an incredible feat of the amount of content that had to be developed in that time and the tools and systems that those um, incredibly talented people created. Yeah, Gobo was that. So, uh, But the other thing with Electric Square is, is they were doing the racing games. And then again, pillars that have kind of like changed people's perception and what electric square is all about i think uh, things such as they've announced uh, they were working on assassin's creed vr uh, they've obviously announced that they were working on and it's out in the public domain of diablo uh, with activision blizzard so these these are games which are far distance away from racing games and these are pillars within that studio that allow other companies to kind of go oh wow you, you guys can go and do this but what you sometimes need is just, you just need a company to take that chance on you and go, yes, we believe you can do this because of we've had several meetings. We understand what the talent you have within there. And it's not all just about making games in this genre. So I would say for my time at Gobo and, and Electric Square, I would say those were the key points. My time at D3T, I was only there for kind of a year. So I, the stuff that um, I worked on from a business development is stuff that's still in development, so I, I can't talk about that. But the other games which uh, kind of stick in their mind, I would say, is the guys at D3T would be able to give you a thing. But I think Hogwarts Legacy was really good for them as a business. It was good for lots of companies. Again, Gobo went from For Honor 
into uh, Hyperscape with Ubisoft and then uh, worked on Hogwarts Legacy for four and a half years and created a huge amount of content within that game uh, and stuff. So that, again, was a was a good pillar for thing. It's kind of like Disney Infinity, Frana, Hogwarts Legacy, and now they're working on a new game, uh, which they publicly announced they're working with uh, Gorilla. That's as much as I can say on that, other than what's in the public domain and stuff. But again, I think that will be another pillar uh, and another uh, for them to kind of expand and, and, and show the worth of what that studio is all about. It's fun to kind of hear, for lack of better words, but you can almost call it like a flex. Like, what, what are these studios able to create? And, and I love your, your your way you're putting it, like, give them a chance in another type of game. I mean, we see that from, uh, was it a creative assembly right now, right? They tried to create hyenas and whether whatever that was going to be, right? And maybe it didn't work out, but I mean, the game looked like it was going to be successful, but they pulled the plug on it. But, you know, if, if you don't give these studios opportunities to try to build new games, you're just going to be stuck in a rut. And then you have what's coming out is uh, Suicide Squad, right? Kill the, uh, kill the uh, whatever, right? And yeah. it's like, uh, Rocksteady doesn't even look like the old Rocksteady and then everyone just kind of pigeonholes them into what type of game they think they can create and like yeah. that's why we no, hear just... a lot of pros about co-development right now even from a mentality of in the studio right like you're not forced to work on your own IPs you get to start working on different types of tools right? and that just helps uh, individuals as well right you don't just create the same character over and over again yeah and I mean one of the things I will say to um people about working at co-development studios is that you get to touch a lot of games and work on a lot of games over a period of time that if you were working in a studio and solely working at that studio you may only work on that one game so let's i mean for argument's sake let's mention like uh, rockstar games i mean amazing rockstar games are incredible like i can't wait for grand theft Auto 6 to come out Grand Theft Auto 5 was the last game that I officially took two days off work to play. And I, I, that, and I mean, it's like I took book two days off, went and bought it, got a load of popcorn, crisp, Coke, chocolate and everything. And just kind of, and I remember my two boys were still at school and they were envious. They were like, that's just outrageous, Dad. I'm like, you're not old enough to play it anyway. And, like, and they were like, oh. Did you do it uh, Xbox or PlayStation? Uh, PlayStation. Uh. But yeah, but it's it was so... The people who works on that works on that for a long time. And then again, if you kind of look at it and go, well, GTA 5's been out, GTA 6 is coming, it's kind of like the people at that studio have worked on it for a long time. And and I'm sure it will be, um, it's going to be highly anticipated to come out and I'm sure it's going to be a huge success based on the quality of the games they've produced before. However, there's, there's people in our industry, and rightly so, that want to work on games like that. And there's other people in our industry who go, I don't know if I can be working on the game for like six years or five years or whatever it is the fatigue comes into that i mean they, they and stuff it's just the way we're all made up it's like it's it's horses for courses and if you're a person that wants to work on maybe a game for a couple of years or 18 months or whatever it may be then co-development studios is a great place for you to sit because you can go and work on work for those studios um, such as what we're doing uh, where we are now at Tanglewood and what I've done previously within the Keyword Studios. And um, you get to work on a lot of games over the same period of time. Uh, you may not have exactly the same amount of input into that game as someone who's worked on it for a, a, a big period of time, but it's that kind of mentality. It's kind of like if people are working on the same thing all the time, they sometimes go, I'm a bit bored. I need I need a change. I want to go and work on something else. And if that option isn't there in their company, they will probably go and look for that option elsewhere and stuff. So it's there's no one size fits all in um, game development. It's very kind of every person is an individual. Um, and also your studios like Rockstar, your studios like Sony Santa Monica, your studios like Naughty Dog uh, and stuff. Um, other, I mean, studios around Gorilla, for example. Uh, Insomniac. Insomniac, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Uh, but yeah, so the guys like Insomniac, to me, they're destination studios. Do you know what I mean? They're studios that, like, if I'm, I'm 52 by the end of this month. And if, if I kind of think of, if I was like 30 years younger and I was coming out of a university and trying to get into the games industry, I'd be looking at those studios going, 
I want to have those on my CV. They're, they're destination studios. Um, I know co-development studios are, are working very hard to become destination studios. It's, it's always going to be a, a tricky hurdle to climb um, and get over for those studios. But they're studios that people go, I want to work at that studio. I want to work at those studios. And I'm sure there's more up-and-coming studios out there as well that have got games in development and stuff. There's a few that I can think of, but I won't name um, because they're, they're working on products and their products not out at the moment. But that's, I mean, if, if you're young and enthusiastic and, and like everybody is in the games, we're all enthusiastic. Those are the studios that I think you, you kind of like, you aim to be a part of. So I don't know if someone will work at any of those companies for the lifetime of their career in video games. They may do but they might just use it as a stop and go, I want to I want to tick that box. I want to scratch that itch. I need to go and do that. And uh, I mean, there was a young guy who, when I was doing recruitment at Gobo, uh, we went to a university. It was um, coming in game assembly over in Malmo, and it's a very strong university that brings a lot of talent into the games industry. And uh, we met him, we interviewed him, we flew him over uh, to Brighton, met him we took him out for dinner showed him we offered him an internship and, and, a, and a position at a company and i asked him why he got into video games why he wanted to make video games he went ah oh, because of rare he said i wanted to make video games because of rare because i played rare games when i was younger and i loved them and blah blah and he got offered an internship at rare and he said i've been offered something at rare i said well congratulations good luck at rare and he went do you not want me to come i went no no you have to go and work for rare uh, 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 because he was young, he was only 22. It's not like he's 50 and he's like going to retire soon. It's like, you have to go and do that because in my eyes, it was kind of like, if you don't go and do that and you come to work at someone like Gobo or another company, in the back of his head, he probably began, I wonder what it was like. And that was the company that made him want to make video games. So in that instance, you have to go and do that. And we fully encouraged him to go and do that and, and stuff. And I, I don't know if he's... Um, I, I, believe he's still not there I, I believe he's at another company now i won't mention who he is um but we we stay in contact and he, he always thanks me for that he said thank you very much he, he goes i said no you had to do it i said because if you didn't do it you'd always have that thing in the back of mind going oh, i wonder i wonder what it was like i wonder what it is and you may not get that opportunity again and it may be saying you you'll regret forever so i think there are destination studios and then co-development um, there's going to be a group and there's going to be masses of people who want to work for co-development studios and so forth. And some people might want a bit of a mix of both. Yeah, I, I love that story. I mean, I think we all had a game that kind of turned us on to gaming and say, hey, this is an awesome, right? Awesome opportunity and golden eye for someone that's my age is, yeah. is one of those types of games. It's just like, yeah. wow, this changed yeah. gaming, right? And yeah, maybe Rare isn't what it was years ago. It's making a great name, I think, for itself again. But like, Scratch that itch, right? I love the idea of a destination studio because that's insomniac. I imagine being able to tell someone you worked on Spider-Man too. And I think there's awesome. I mean, seeing what these studios are building itself are like new innovations like the quick travel and Spider-Man is fun to see how gaming's progressing. And these destination studios are the ones that are building a lot of those experiences. Not saying code development aren't as well. It usually doesn't get credited as easy, but like, I think that's an awesome way to put it is like work for your dream studio, learn what you can and then go from there. Cause that's what this industry is. That's what most industries are. Learn what you can at one place, bring that yeah. knowledge to another place. Oh, exactly. And, and if, if we look at a studio that we kind of mirror in, in as such is like video, uh, like film and stuff like that, TV and film is like people go and work for the big studios. They go and work for the MGMs and Fox and stuff like that. And then those people learn their craft and they learn their, they understand the business more, et cetera, et cetera. And then they might go off and create their own production company and go and make their own film and stuff like that. But they're never going to be able to do that or very, can be very tricky to do that straight out of, uh, of a university and so forth. So you have to go and learn. Like I always say to people, like try and try and get into an organization where there's like, if you're coming out of university, you would do something with friends and have some fun doing that and, and, and hopefully be successful. But try and go to the company where you can, like really learn it's like try and be that sponge and try and absorb as much as you can and take in and stuff and and as an industry we need to be doing that as well because um we're now getting to a point in our industry where people are starting to retire yeah and that, that's that that shows the maturity of where we are as an industry now 
is people are starting to retire and we need to be sharing that knowledge because we can't take that knowledge away with us. So there must there has to be ways of how we can transport that knowledge and transfer that knowledge into the younger generation of today and stuff. So, yeah, I, that, that's my kind of take on that. It's an interesting conversation, kind of where gaming is going, because that's a great point that, that some of our, our veterans in the industry are, are going to start to step down and, and it's opportunity for new people to kind of step up and make a name for themselves. We also, the demographic that plays games are changing on how they play, right? Back in the day, no one would even fathom that Twitch is a thing and people are going to watch people play games. Now we see a lot of the, the younger generations are watching people play as much as that as much as they're playing game. And I think that changes the strategies of how you create games, what type of games you want to create. So with all that terrible intro of me saying that is like, where, where do you believe gaming is going to be going? Like, what are the big things you as a business development manager kind of are focusing on noticing trends in the industry for 2024? And is there anything specific that excites you? Before I answer the question, I'd say one thing on the, the, the watching of Twitch and people watching it. I remember my two sons and I'm, I'm not saying they're the marketplace and stuff like that, but obviously they're two boys that have grown up around video games. And they play a lot of video games. And I remember going in, I'm like, Oh, what are you playing? They went, Oh no, we're just watching this. And I'm like, what, what are you watching? They were watching some YouTube videos on Minecraft and doing it. I'm like going, why are you watching video? Just play the game. I said, why are you watching it? And my youngest son said, why do you sit on the sofa and watch football on a Sunday? And I was like, Oh yeah. Owned. <laughs> and and, and it, it was such a like a light bulb in my head. I was like, Yeah, my you know, I I have grown up watching football, so I want to watch football or, or soccer as as the Americans call it. Um but to him he's he, he wanted to watch other people play video games and stuff because that was just the generation of where it is. So it was a very kind of light bulb thing. With regards to new trends and where we might be going in the video games and how we're looking to work. I don't see 2024 being any different from the other years with regards to, um, I don't think anyone's going to come out with an amazing new genre and, and so on and so forth. I think that the, I think the big changes that will happen this year and the benefit of co-development is um, I think the benefit of co-development studios, and I've said this to a few people is that if you want to expand your studio, you've got to try and hire in, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 people. It's like, so you've got a studio of maybe 50 people and you're looking to expand. You have options. The options are you can go and work with a co-development studio and they can bring the additional resources to you or you can go and hire those additional resources. If you go down the hiring route, A, it's going to take you time to find those people and you've got to find the right people so the right caliber of people you want to. And the most important thing is you've got to find and make sure that those people are going to be able to work with each other. Working with a co-development studio, someone like Tanglewood or the other studios that we mentioned, Gobo's Electric Square, um, is at Tanglewood, we've got people that have worked with each other for the last 10 years. If you come and work with someone like us or other studios in that co-development, you've already got over that hurdle of like, oh, are these people going to be able to work with each other? Oh, are, is there going to be anyone at loggerheads? And oh, is, is it going to be mixed? They're all clever people, but are they going to gel and stuff like that? Well, with a co-development studio, you've already got those gel. You've already got a high, A, you've got a high caliber of individuals that are working somewhere, so you, that ticks them off for you. B, you've already got a, a caliber of people that are used to working with each other and understand how each other works and stuff like that. So the benefits of working with co-development are, are, are massive, I think. I just think that it's, it's, it's where the industry will continue to go and grow. Um, I think that, we, as an industry, we had a hard time in 2023. I think a lot of people grew. Obviously, they did grow in the pandemic years because they needed to get resources on board because they wanted to get content out because people were spending more money on video games because we could go in nowhere else in the world. But now the world's reopened, so people's disposable income is now being spent on the things that it was being spent on in 2018 and 2019. It's like, I'm going for a restaurant with a wife or I'm taking the kids on holiday or we're going to this or we're going to that. And etc etc so my disposable income is now being spread across the 15 to 20 things that it was spread on before when we was in lockdown my disposable income was either spent on doing my house up netflix disney plus subscription paramount prescription or playing video games and video games was a big thing because you could interact with that and stuff or doing online pub quizzes um and stuff which everyone got into but i think with um 
Dakota, with the downside and the downscaling of the industry last year, it it, become, it comes with negative press for companies, and that's unfortunate. But when a, an organisation decides to reduce their scope and reduce their size, they have to let those people go. That comes with the negative press that comes with it, and the press um, jump on that bandwagon, and, and rightly so and stuff. And as an industry, we're out there trying to support each other, everyone via LinkedIn. is like, oh, we've heard this is going, this is going. And I think the industry has really tried to help um, those people have been unfortunately uh, have, have been let go from wherever they were previously working and, and try to come together as an industry and be stronger for it. I think going forward, I think people might be looking at that and kind of going, well, we only want to get to an internal team of X big. And that, that X could be anything. There's no magic number on that. It could be 50 people, 100 people, 150 people, whatever. I think I'm going to be surprised if I see internal studios get over like 150 people, even for the big, big studios. And the reason for that is I think they will get to a, a number where they kind of go, yeah, we're happy with this. We can keep this internal studio. We can have this burn rate, etc., And we'll just build our team with external resources to make the game. And then when the game comes out or when that external resources contract finishes, if when I was at Gobo, and then I was at Tanglewood and Electric Square. When Gobo fin and D3T, when we finished working on Hogwarts Legacy and D3T finished working on Hogwarts Legacy and Tanglewood finished working on Hogwarts Legacy and Red Kite was working on it and certain affinity were working on it, when all those external studios were there, there was no bad press towards Warner Brothers. I mean, no one wrote, oh, Warner Brothers have got rid of these studios. That was part of our contract. That was part of our agreement. Everyone knew what was happening. So I think maybe, I, I like to think that's the way the industry is going to, to go and to go. I like to think that the industry will um, look at that scenario. And again, if I look at film as being a kind of an industry, which kind of, I always look in comparison to video games is if you go and watch a, a big movie, five, 10% of the people who work on that movie are probably employed full time at MGM. And the other 90, 95% of people are work for higher people. It's like, you're not going to hire cameramen 24 hours, like a day, 12, 12 months a year. You're going to hire your cameramen when you need your cameraman. You're going to need, you're hiring your makeup artists when you need your makeup artists and you're hiring your editors when you need your editors. And it's a sim, similar thing in video games. You're going to hire the engineers when you need the engineers. You're going to hire the artists when you need the artists and you're going to hire the QA people when you need the QA people and audio and so on and so forth with that. So I think it's, Having co-development studios out there is, is is a huge benefit to the games industry and it's a huge benefit to studios that are out in that field of kind of going, you can have the resources to make your game to the quality your game needs to be. You don't necessarily have to have all these people internally. I'm not saying that's for every single company out there because there will be some companies um, who do decide to bring have everything internally uh, within their studio, but there are going to be studios out there who go, we only want to be this size and then we can hire these people in for six months, 12 months, two years, three years, Gobo works on Hogwarts for over four years and stuff. So there is going to be that need. And when it, when the day come to cut the cloth and that's kind of a, maybe a silly way to say that the contract comes to the end, everybody knew what was happening. And at that stage at Gobo and at Tanglewood, we can see that the contract's going to end. We'll be talking to our clients about, Oh, are we extending? Do you want to extend? The game is being released. You know that's not going to happen. So X amount of time before that is, I mean, whatever that may be for that business, you start looking around for other opportunities and stuff for your team. And so so I think co-development has, has huge advantages. But I'm saying that from a co-development point of view, but I do believe it has huge advantages for people with regards to like you can turn it on and turn it off when you want to. And you'll get an experienced team that know how to work with each other and know how to dig into the trenches when the when the trouble kind of comes along. And it does, unfortunately. Video games are hard to make. Yeah, and I think with that being said, right, you're going to need a good business development manager at the end of the day, right? Because if there's more of these co-development studios that are being built up, right, it's going to come down to, A, the type of talent that you have on board, the type of games you can create, the portfolio that we were talking about earlier. And also kind of, again, your network, right? How, who are we actually selling these games to? Are we able to go to Microsoft? Are we able to go to Sony? Are we able to go to you know, these people and, and get business there, right? Because I, I think there are a lot of pros to co-development, but we don't often talk about the cons of pro development. I actually can't think of many other than maybe you don't 
internally have the the resources but when you're just trying to create a game right like here, here are your specs go create your game say in the co-development world that i've always been in we've we've always joined a product we've not been the lead developer on it so we've not kind of a product as as normally come to us where for example when we was at gobo we joined for honor on the day that it got released and worked on the dlc uh, stuff we joined hogwarts when it was about a year year and a half in development so avalanche would already have something up and running a lot of companies that we work with now within the Tanglewood world are kind of going through a pre-production, may get to a vertical slice. They found that they found that fun within their game. And now they're kind of going, oh, we found the fun. And saying you found fun and finding fun, it is, it, it's kind of like, how long's a piece of string? It, it's, it's difficult. But once they found that and go, this feels really, really good, we need to build more of this. That's where they then go and look for co-development studios to do it. So, it's about offering the right resources at the right time. And the only way you get to offer the right resources at the right time is by networking and keeping that communication loop open uh, of where potential opportunities are coming. So it's, for me, it's not about, oh, what I'm talking to you on a Friday. What do you need on a Monday? I'm, I'm having conversations with people about, look, this is our roadmap for 2024. We have some availability here. We have some availability in the second half of the year. What's your roadmap looking like? And, and, those conversations six years ago were kind of alien to a lot of people going, oh, wow, this, we're really trying to plan ahead and stuff. And, and it's like, yeah. And now it becomes a norm where people are talking about, oh, we might need some help in January Jan- January 2025. And it's just like, OK, fair enough. Let, let's let's have that conversation. Let, let's, let's have it. Because what you want to be happening there, and one of the things that we did at uh, Tanglewood and stuff is, if we can have those conversations on earlier, and it's not like we're having those conversations every week or we're having those conversations every month, we're having conversations. We're talking about your game. We're talking about your game and how we might be able to help you make your game and get your game to. During that period of time, what it allows us to do is develop it understands a vision of what your game is all about. It understands what you're trying to create, your roadmap for that game and so on. So if we are going to be your chosen or one of your co- chosen co-developments, because there's traditionally more than one because of the different services people are offering, is when we join that product, we've kind of met most, if not all of your leadership team and most of the development team. We've probably visited your studio. You've probably visited our studio. We've already been out for meals and a few beers or whatever you're doing socially, building up that rapport and stuff. So when we do officially start, it's not like the first day of school and you're going around and going, oh, nice to meet you. Well, you're going, yeah, okay, well, we know what you're doing because we've had meetings about this because the whole benefit of doing that is that the client knows what they're bringing you on board for. We know what the client's bringing us on board for and we're doing that. And we're having those pre-conversations that when we hit the ground, we hit the ground running. All of the IT infrastructure is set up, all the perforce is set up and everything else. These these are hugely benefit. And you only get to those you only get to do those opportunities if you can engage with people very early in the process and having those conversations. So I hate to kind of change the topic of conversation no, sure. here. We're getting, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. And I want to make sure we talk about something that excites me the most on what you've worked on. And that's you being on the board of directors for GamesAid. I think it's a fantastic charity. Yeah. You've, been, uh, you've raised over 4.4 million pounds. You've been around for 15 years. And every time I log on to LinkedIn, someone's talking about the go-kart uh, go kart thing that keywords. If you're looking to send anyone go karting, you can you can send me over. I'm happy to do it. But can you tell us a little bit about Games Aid, where that kind of idea stemmed from it, and what's so, the mission? So ga- yeah, so Games Aid was founded, as you rightly say, 15 years ago. I wasn't involved 15 years ago. It was formed by um, a lot of people who are now extremely senior within the, the games industry, um, who were senior within. Um, their organisations at the time, people like Stuart Dinsey, who's at Curve, Andy Payne, um, who's at British Esports and Mastertronic, uh, Charles Cecil, Ian Livingston, Sir Ian Livingston now. Uh, he probably hate me calling him Sir Ian Livingston, so I'll call him Ian Livingston. And there's a whole group of people who set up. And then over time, they attracted more people to get involved because you would only get involved as a trustee, as, as, as it was as it was. Uh, described for a minimum of kind of three years you could do a little bit longer but a minimum term of three years and once you've done your three years you would go and get someone else to get involved and they would become a trustee and you would be able to step back and other people would get the baton and roll run with it and stuff like that so games aid is an umbrella organization so 
I say the easiest way I can explain it to people is kind of like it's a bit like comic relief in the UK or uh, stand up cancer where it kind of looks to raise as much money as it possibly can. And then that money gets distributed to smaller charities within the UK. Uh, it's a UK um, charitable organization. And the charities are chosen by the members. So anyone within the video games industry, uh, big or small, old or young, can become a member of Games Aid. It's free to become a member of Games Aid. Um, and what that allows is you get a monthly newsletter saying all these things that are happening in Games Aid. Things like the go-karting, comedy nights, etc., etc. And then all our members get to vote. So all our members get to nominate charities. So any charity which they believe they want to support and nominate, they can nominate. We do a due diligence on those. Uh, due diligence is based on the overheads have to be less than three million pound and the turnover and the expenditure on that is to be less than 28 percent so your overheads are less than 28 percent of whatever you're generating if you generate over three million you kind of fall outside again because we're looking to support those small local charities and those small local charities will be doing anything from uh, children with uh, severe disabilities uh, and born with uh, maybe short lifetime expectations up to charities where they're looking after people who unfortunately might find themselves homeless from the age of 16 to 22 and stuff. So there's different charities around the country that are different. And then once they go through the due diligence, we then have a voting process and every member gets to vote. And then the, the five or six charities, depending on uh, the funding that's happened that year, uh, the, the highest votes, they become our selected charities for that year. So they then, from April through to March, uh, the charities are selected and whatever funds are raised for that year, then that gets equally distributed uh, across the, the charities. And then again, we go around the cycle and every year we get to vote again and vote again and vote again. One of the first charities that Games Aid supported was a charity called Special Effect, which everyone has probably heard of Special Effect worldwide now. Uh, but they create uh, specialist controllers with um, young children and adults with uh, severe disabilities and so forth. So people playing FIFA or Forza with their eyes to like head and neck controllers where people are, are playing, which is an incredible charity. And they were the one, the first that we supported um, and so forth. And we've allowed them, well, not us allowing them, but we, we've, I'd like to think, provided them with a platform and, and an engagement in the games industry that the games industry has really absorbed them because they are making games accessible to everybody and they're, they're an incredible bunch and we work we still work very close with them they're not one of our charities we support at the moment because they've gone outside the funding window but we still speak to each other on a regular basis just due to the relationship that we have and to be honest we we still we still speak with most of the charities that we supported over the years on a regular basis uh, and stuff um events that we do we just try to bring people together and have fun and try to on a serious note, explain why we're doing and what we're doing. And the reason I got involved with games is because and games aid is because the games industry has been really good to me. Um, I joined when I was seventeen. I left school. I got in in QA. I'm still doing this now at nearly fifty-two. Come April, it'll be thirty-five years I've been in the games industry, and I've been to some amazing cities around the world. I've been to some amazing conferences. I've met some incredible people, people I'd never even dream of meeting and stuff like that. And yeah, and I've been very, very fortunate. And I, I always thought that I wanted to give something back. So I've been a part of Games Aid on two different stages for six, seven years, uh, back in 2016 to 19, and then more recently, 20 through to today and uh, and stuff. But my tenure is coming to the end soon, so I'm going to have to I'm going to have to step down uh, after doing my bit and hopefully rope in um, some more people um, to, to kind of carry the baton on. But it doesn't mean I'm stepping away. On a day-to-day -day basis of running Games Aid, yes, I'll be stepping away from it. But on a on a basis of helping putting on events such as the go-kart and the comedy nights, the gang in the van, the develop tombolas and things like that, yeah, I'll, I'll still be involved with them. It's very difficult to... It's very difficult to leave that stuff behind once it kind of grabs you. It grabs you by the heart and you kind of go, yeah. And I mean, and this industry is a great industry and uh, we, all, we all do very well. I mean, we've all, we've all had, I mean, financially or not, 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 just fi not just financially. I was wrong there, really. Just, we just all do well because we're working in an industry that we love. Do you know what I mean? There's not many people who probably go to work every day of the week and go, yeah, this is fun. This is really fun. It's like 
we make video games. We're making entertainment. It, it's it's like it, it's it's the greatest thing that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of in, in my work in life. And and I don't think many people, when I speak to my mates who don't work in the games industry, they've had different jobs doing different things, and, and they go, "You're incredibly lucky." And I'm like, "Yeah, no, I'm now I'm lucky." And so for being lucky. And being part of Games Day just allows me to offer something back and going, yeah, look, the industry's been good to me. Let's try and bring the industry together that can raise some funds and help people who are a little bit less fortunate at that time in their life uh, and stuff, and try and give people a, a bit of a, a better enjoyment and hopefully give them some exposure to video games in some shape or form and, and so forth. So, I'd love to get keywords involved. I'm talking to Joe Byer about uh, the go kart, and I'm talking to him about the golf. I, I would love. And this is a prime. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this platform now to sell. So this is a prime example, right? Where I look at keywords and Electric Square come and do the go karting, Studio Gobo do the go karting, D3T do the go karting, slash Coconut Lizard. Um, those studios are big studios. They all employ over 150 people, right? So they will go and do the go karting because it's only four people in the team. So they have enough resources to get four people who are excited about go karting year in year out, and they will continue to do that. What I see from keywords point of view and using them as a, a basis or even someone like Virtuous or something like that is that keywords have a lot of companies in the UK specifically because that's where it takes place. Or if they want to fly you over to the go-kart and Greg and then stick you on a plane, that'd be great. Um, but they have companies who are probably in the region of maybe 20 to 30 people and trying to find four people who want to do go-karting or four people who want to play golf or X amount of people who want to go along to the comedy nights is more difficult because it's a numbers game. You know what I mean? So so what I think keywords can do, and Bertram and John Hawk and Joe are going to be like, oh, edit that out. I don't know. I'm joking. I'm joking. They're lovely people. Um, I hope they listen. No, but, but they, they, they can, I think they could put teams in under the keywords banner and then go to those small companies so they can go to like Waste, they can go to Itchy, they can go to Indigo Pearl, uh, they can go to player research and go to the trailer farm. They can go to the companies who are a little bit smaller with regards to numbers and go to them and say, we've got a couple of spaces. We've got a couple of teams. We need eight people who's interested in it. And hopefully you'll get eight. Hopefully they get more and then they can do a selective process of doing it. And in that way, that allows those people to go along to that networking event. We have 48 companies that come along to the go kind. Like it's two semifinals of 24. So if Keywords had one in the south and one in the north, because Keywords offer every single service that you potentially need in the video games industry, there's a great platform. They could take someone like Blondine along, could take Johnny Taylor along from the UK, like BizSev sales team and stuff that could go along and network and stuff. I know companies, and I won't name who they are, but I know companies that have gone along to the go-karting as a developer, met a publisher, and they're doing a game with that publisher now. And that's based on the thing. And I said to them, you need, and they went, yeah, we need to make a donation to Games Aid because it wouldn't have happened without Games Aid. And I went, yeah, look, you, you paid for your go It's but, but it's a prime example that networking isn't just about going to a hotel lobby on a big GDC, Dice, XDS, whatever the conference may be, uh, Pocket Gamer. Networking can be in other elements. And sometimes in those more casual kind of relaxed environments it can work um people who are a little bit more kind of yeah look we'll have a conversation about this they're a little bit more open to and having conversations and stuff so yeah i'd love to see companies like keywords get involved i love to see companies like virtuous get involved i love to see people organizations that have bigger like they're a big organization that has multiple studios and going oh well we can't get enough out of this studio we want to go and it's like well open this up to all your studios hopefully you're if you've got eight studios, hopefully you'll get one person from each studio. You'll have, be able to have two go-karting teams. You'll get branding and then stuff like that and, and so forth. So, yeah, that, that's my bit on Games Aid. <laughs> I love it, and, and I will push for it internally as well. But but going back to the original point, right, yeah. I, I love just the the giving back, the helping of charities. I think that, you know, we, we are in fortunate places, and it's very nice to be able to look and say, hey, I want to help people out. And I think that's the importance of this industry. I think it makes it stronger. No matter what industry it is, when you're helping out people who want to be involved, right, it makes it a stronger thing. And I, and I, I love that you do it, and I love that you help, and, and I think you deserve 
deserve all the credit in the world for putting these events together and the team that's helping you with that. I think, yeah. you know, accessibility, it, gaming for all, kids who are between 16 and 22, right? It's hard for them to find homes when, when they're when they're out there. And I think supporting him is the most noble thing that we can do as people. And I credit you for that. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's very humbling. It's very, um, yeah, it, it just... It's just brilliant. I, I I love it. I love every single thing, e- even when you're busy at work and you're traveling around the world. And I do a lot of that and stuff like that. I always find time to get involved with the games day stuff because it's it's it just it's just so important in my in my mind. It's just so important and stuff. And if anyone is interested in helping Games Aid in any way or getting involved with any events we do, please go onto LinkedIn. Look for Games Aid as, a, as an organisation, uh, get in touch with Gina Lorenzo or Lily uh, Remington, uh, who are coordinators, um, and there are full-time members of staff. They will be able to kind of direct you into uh, stuff. Uh, we have a thing called, we call it Games Raid now. Um, we used to call it Gang in a Van, but we it was kind of like, wow, that didn't really kind of work. Uh, but we're calling it Games Raid, uh, where what we do is once a year we, we hire a lorry and... Uh, for the last few years, it's been me that's been driving it around London and the south of England. And we go to publishers and we we turn up there and, and it's all coordinated with them beforehand. And we say, look, have you got any old games or old T-shirts or old swag or merchandise or anything that's just sitting in your warehouse, sitting in your cupboards, gathering dust that you can donate to us? And we fill up this van with a load of stuff and we end up selling that, uh, reselling that via eBay or we take it to the Develop Conference in the UK or EGX in the UK, and we run a Tombola, and uh, and it generates money. The, the Tombola last year, EGX, raised £23,000 over like three days. The one at Develop raised about seven or £8,000 over two days. Um, so if anyone in the publishing side wants anything to develop, uh, donate and stuff, please get in touch with the Games Aid team. If you're interested in getting involved as an ambassador, helping, doing an event, doing a bake-off, doing anything that's just fun, just just do something that's fun. Do a 24-hour stream or whatever it may be. It's like, please get in touch with Lily and, and Gina. Reach out to myself. I can always put you on to uh, those people directly and stuff. And we're all. And I always say the most important thing is become a member. Become a member of Games Day and because the members make the difference they're the people who nominate the charities and we've supported charities that i've never heard of because they've been local charities in local towns or local cities i'm based in london i don't hear about a local charity up in the northeast of england or the northwest of england or in birmingham of in, uh, in the midlands and stuff the people who work in those industries they find those charities they work with those charities and they go oh look you could we could try and get you into games aid and, and so forth and and i think the biggest year we had was back in 2017 2018 we raised just shy of a million pounds so that was our biggest year um and stuff and it kind of dipped a little bit since then but we're hopefully and the pandemic really didn't help because we do live events and, and in-person events and so forth so we couldn't do that for two years and when you start doing things when you stop doing things people kind of forget about it so we, we've taken a few years to try and get back to where we are but we are organizing more events and stuff so hopefully we can continue to uh, grow it. Hopefully, we can continue to engage with the industry, and um, hopefully, we can continue to support. Maybe instead of five or six charities, we can support seven or eight charities. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I will push internally for it because I do think I, I love the cause, and, and I appreciate hearing about it. And Terry, we, we've had you here for an hour. You've talked about co-development, networking, charity, uh, what's coming up in gaming. And I loved it all. I think we can keep going. But is there anything we, we didn't talk about that you want to share before we go for the day? No, not really. I, I, if anyone's interested in reaching out, um, I mentor a few people in, in the games industry. If anyone's interested in reaching out and having a conversation, please hook me up on LinkedIn um by all means I, I will do my best to try and get back to you as quickly as i possibly can uh, please don't feel i'm ignoring you if it's taking a few days it's just busy life and and so forth and if i'm not not the right person then i'll try and introduce you to somebody who might be able to help you and, and offer some guidance and uh, i would say just keep knocking just if you if you're in business development or you're setting up a little studio and you, you're kind of you're wearing several hats because that's what small studios do 
just keep knocking on the door. Like, don't pester people every single day, every day and going, I didn't even yesterday, I'm going to pester you today. Give people time to come back to you. Give them a, a week, two weeks, whatever it is. I normally have a kind of 10 to 14 day window and, and stuff like that. You don't want to be hounding people. Um, try and get along to as many events as you possibly can. I appreciate some are more expensive than others. If you can't, or your company, or if you're a startup and you're bootstrapping stuff, then you can't get along to the event and get a pass at the event. Try and get into that city. Try and get into those hotel lobby bars and stuff like that. Try and do your networking that way. Try and get into that sort of realm um, and so forth. And yeah, and you'll be surprised. Reach out to people in the industry. You'll, you'll, you'll sometimes be surprised how warm and welcoming people are because, like, I don't know. In years to come, I still want to be playing video games hopefully with my grandchildren if my if my two boys have children in their life. But the only way that's going to happen is if we keep bringing people into the industry. And um, so we have to make ourselves um, available to share that knowledge. You got to get those nimble fingers back to start beating them in. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I don't think so. I don't think. I think. I think the. I think the joints are starting to go, Greg. To be honest. <laughs> well, Terry, I really appreciate you coming out today. We will have all information for Terry Tanglewood as well as Games Aid directly on our Player Engage website. We'll we'll put it on social media as well. Again, this was a very educational session for me, Terry. I, I really enjoyed our conversation, and thank you so much for coming out today. Pleasure, Greg. Thanks very much for the invite. Cheers.